The Holy Spirit helps us as we pray. And so we're going to see and underscore in our thinking this morning how important it is that we pray in the Spirit as the New Testament teaches us. But sometimes we don't know how to pray or what to pray for or when to pray or if we should pray at all. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in our ongoing study of the Book of Romans and finding ourselves in Chapter 8, halfway through this marvelous epistle. We have been looking at suffering in the life of a believer, and today, Pastor Brogy looks at how different people react differently to trials in their lives. Take the Word of God this morning, would you, and turn to the Book of Romans, Chapter 8. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through Romans chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and today we're in the halfway point, the eighth chapter. And uh, as you're turning there, let me ask you a question, if I might. Why do Christians sometimes respond differently to the same kind of trial? Why is it that when some Christians face a trial in life, on the backside, they come out stronger and more like Jesus Christ? Where other Christians who face the exact same trial, they come out either mad at others or bitter at God or resentful at life. Why do two different people produce two different results from the exact same trial? Is it because God is unfair or is it because God has put too much upon us that the trial was too big for us? Well, even if you know a little bit of the Bible, you know that's not true. For God says, no temptation, or you can translate it, no trial. It's the same Greek word. No trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested or tried beyond that which you are able. But with every testing, he will provide a way of escape. So why are some successful and others are failures? And I'm not talking about the lost here. I'm talking about those who are genuinely saved, those who have met Jesus, who are in the truest sense born-again Christians. Well, it's a matter of perspective. And so when we come to the 12th chapter, we will be commanded not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. The Greek word is metamorphosis. Oh, we got our word metamorphosis from it. You know what metamorphosis is, where a caterpillar is metamorphosized into a butterfly? Let your mind be transformed, changed, that you might think your thoughts after God's thoughts. Well, God today wants to give us some perspective. Now, if you were here last time, we examined verses 18 to 25. We saw that there's going to be some moans and groans and sufferings that the child or God is going to face in this life. But now in verses 26 to 30, he's going to give us some vertical perspective. All right? Follow along in your Bible. Would you beginning now in verse 26? In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose." Now let's read verses 29 and 30 with it. We're going to spend a couple of weeks just on these verses in the future. But he adds, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, let me take just a moment to set the context of our passage. When you come into chapter 8, there's a stark contrast between this and chapter 7. Chapter 7 ends with wretched man that I am. And chapter 8 ends with just exaltation and praise and thanksgiving to God Almighty. In chapter 7, Paul has been preoccupied with the law. But in chapter 8, he's preoccupied with God the Holy Spirit. Before chapter 8, he's been scarcely mentioned. In fact, just twice. Once in chapter 5, where it says he has been poured out into our hearts. And then in chapter 7, where he tells us we are not to serve in oldness of ladder, but newness of the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit chapter. And so he is mentioned no less than 19 times in the first 27 verses. Now, we studied his ministry in verses 2 through 8 when he spoke of God's law and his desire to help us to fulfill it. And so verse 4 informs us that God gave his son. Why? That the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Then in verses 9 to 13, we saw the spirit's ministry in relationship to our fallen nature, how he subdues it. And so he will say in verse 12, so then brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but he will go on to say that we're under obligation to live according to the spirit. Then third in verses 14 to 17, we saw the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit in relationship to our adoption as sons, how he leads us into freedom. And so the Bible can say as adopted son, the sons and daughters, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And then fourth, if you were here last time, we examined verses 18 to 25, and we saw the Holy Spirit's ministry in relationship to our future glory, that he is the guarantee that what God began, God will indeed finish. And so he says in verse 23, if you will notice, we ourselves, meaning we Christians too, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So he compares the work of the Holy Spirit to the first fruits. If you've studied the Feast of First Fruits in the Old Testament, or if you've farmed, you know there's the early harvest, and that is a signal and a taste of what is to come. And so in the New Testament, the Spirit of God is called our pledge, our down payment, our earnest, that he is guaranteeing what God is yet to do in the future. What we experience today is just a small taste of what is going to come. And so there's coming a time when our adoption will be forever closed. We're not fully saved yet in the truest biblical sense. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. But some glorious day when Jesus comes back for his people, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And so, of course, Paul is applying this truth, if you remember, to suffering that we face and how we have an answer to face suffering because the Holy Spirit is a taste of what is to come. And so he'll say here in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you've ever suffered, if you've ever been dealing with some kind of trial, there's always a coping mechanism. I remember as a young boy walking to school with my brother Richard, and it was six below zero. My mother didn't have her license until I was in the sixth grade, and most mornings my father left around 6 a.m. to go do surgery, and we walked. It was, it was slightly, it was a mile and a tenth to get to school. 
and uphill both ways. But, but it was a cold morning, but there was that coping mechanism within. We just thought, oh, when we get to that school, it's going to be so warm inside and this biting cold wind will be gone. Well, if you're in extreme persecution, and that is going to be one of the truths he will highlight before we're done with the eighth chapter, the Holy Spirit is our coping mechanism. He is the first fruit. He is our guarantee that things will get much better. Well, this morning, we're going to look at another ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, as it relates to his ministry to us in prayer. Now, you can see the title of this morning's message there in the bulletin is The Providence of God. We're actually going to look at God's providence as it relates to each and every member of the Godhead. Now, the providence of God is closely related to the sovereignty of God in Scripture. The sovereignty of God speaks of God's right, God's reality to rule over every aspect of his creation. But the providence of God speaks of God's concern, God's care, God's provision, God's thought, God's love for you personally over every single detail of your life. And so this section of Scripture is a beautiful picture of the providence of God, of God's care and concern for you. If you're taking notes first, let's think about the providence of the Spirit in prayer. The providence of the Spirit in prayer. Notice how verse 26 begins. It begins with the words, in the same way. Well, obviously, the careful reader of Scripture would immediately ask in the same way as what? Well, in the same way that hope helps us to cope. Uh, just as hope, and we saw the word elpidus, hope, and in the Greek language is not like in English where it speaks of something that is uncertain, but something that is definite, something that is guaranteed to happen in the future. Hope, our future guarantee of this future inheritance, helps us to cope with the discouragement and the heartache of living in a sin-sick world. Well, in the same way that hope sustains us, even so God the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer. Notice, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, our weakness. And specifically, He helps our weakness, notice, in prayer. For we do not know how to pray as we should. Now, it's important that we understand the nature of this help. Uh, the word help is a picturesque word in Greek. It was used in the first century of two men carrying a long log. And the log was so long you couldn't carry it alone. So you had one man on one end and you had another man on the other end. A man who was helping you. And it's a nice picture because when the Holy Spirit prays for us, the Bible is clear in this text, he doesn't do the praying for us. You still have to pray, but he comes alongside and he helps us in our prayer, in our weakness. The old English says in our infirmities. Why? Because of our ignorance. We do not know how to pray as we should. Sometimes as Christians, we go to God's throne of grace for wisdom, for courage, for faith, for consistency, for purity, for healing, for forgiveness, for a host of other things in our life or, or the lives of other people. And sometimes we know clearly what the will of God is. The Holy Spirit helps us as we pray. And so we're going to see and underscore in our thinking this morning how important it is that we pray in the Spirit as the New Testament teaches us. But sometimes we don't know how to pray or what to pray for or when to pray or if we should pray at all. But we are promised that as we pray, the Holy Spirit will come along. He'll carry his side of the log. Now, interestingly, this word help is a very practical word. It's used in Luke chapter 10 and verse 40. If you remember on one occasion, the Lord Jesus came to the house of Mary and Martha 
And um, Mary is there at the feet of the Lord, listening and enjoying his presence. And Martha is out there serving and banging all those pots and pans. And finally, out of frustration, she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Same word. What I'm wanting you to see is that the help that the Spirit of God gives is a very, very practical help. Now, one of the titles given to God, the Holy Spirit, is that of comforter, or in some of your translations, helper, because the Greek word parakletos refers to him because he is one who comes alongside to help, and he helps our weaknesses. So I want you to see how he helps our weakness in prayer. But, Paul adds, but... The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, if you have the old King James, it doesn't say the Spirit Himself, but the Spirit itself, which unfortunately has propagated a lot of error for the last couple hundred years because the Holy Spirit is not in it. He is a person. Now, let me just say parenthetically, there's been a lot of ink spilt as to why the King James, unlike the new King James that says himself, why the old King James said itself, because clearly the Holy Spirit is not in it. If you go to Oneness Pentecostals and any of their internet sites, they're going to quote this verse. It's one of their home verses. Some Pentecostals are born-again Christians, some are not. Some deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They are called oneness Pentecostals. And by the way, if a Jehovah's Witness shows up at your door, they have the New World Translation, a very faulty translation, but they also, for your benefit, carry the King James. And they'll take you to this text of Scripture, because twice over in the chapter, the King James refers to the Holy Spirit as it. Well, he's not an it. And of course, Jehovah's Witnesses not only deny the the doctrine of the Trinity, they also deny the deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so when they talk about the Holy Spirit, they would say, well, just as Carl Brogy has a spirit, we could call that the spirit of Carl Brogy. So God has a spirit, we can call him the spirit of God, but they do not see him as a co-equal, co-eternal person existing within the Trinity. Now, let me just say, first of all, that I don't want to relegate the translators of the King James in 1611 to a bunch of ignoramuses because they were not. They just assumed that the masses were a lot more intelligent than maybe we can assume in our day. Uh, People in that day didn't have modern English, they had real English. And they understood something about English grammar that we don't. And so without getting into too much detail, in Greek, and I see some of my German brothers back here, like in German, every noun has a uh, masculine, neuter, or feminine agenda that is accompanied to it. Uh, We do it very loosely sometimes in English. We call our boat she, or we call sometimes our cars he, and of course they are neither. Well, in Greek, the word pneuma, spirit, can refer to wind, it can refer to spirit, like in the spirit of a man, or sometimes the context demands it's a reference to God, the Holy Spirit. But it is a neuter noun in the Bible. And so when you modify a neuter noun, you modify it with a neuter pronoun. And so technically, since it's neuter, you, trans, you could translate it it. Now, there are other neuter words in Greek. There's the word, say, um, uh, technon, or the word pidon. There are three words for a uh, child in the Bible. It's brephos, referring to a little baby. And so John the Baptist, while in his mother's womb, is called a brephos, and the same term is used when he's outside of the womb. Why? Because life begins from the moment of conception. Then there's the word technon, translated child, and the word pidon. One refers to a young child, 
The other refers to an older child. But both those two words, technon and python, are neuter. Now, we don't say children are its, do we? Of course not. We wouldn't call a child an it. We'd call him a he or a she. In fact, in German, if I remember, the uh, German word for girl is neuter, is it not? Yeah, Frieder, he's shaking his head, yeah. uh And and so technically, uh, you could translate it it, but girls are not its. Well, the writers and the authors and the translators of the King James were not stupid. They just believed that we understood something about language. And by the way, it's very important why God does it this way. Turn over a page or look across the page, if you will, to Romans chapter 9 and verse 5 for just a moment. Look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. We're probably still five or six weeks away from this text, but let me give you a preview. He's talking about the people of Israel, and he's talking about all the great blessings that they have been given. And when you come down to verse 5, speaking of the Jewish people, he says, "...whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever, amen." Now, when it says God-blessed forever, Amen. Is that just a benediction? Or is it saying that Jesus is blessed of God? Well, no, not at all. It's actually saying that Jesus is God blessed forever. If they were saying Jesus was blessed of God, then it would be a genitive. You would say, like I could say, uh, the way it literally reads in Greek, when you do a possessive or a genitive, you'd say the car of Carl, meaning Carl's car, right? The car of Carl. It would be a genitive that Jesus is blessed of God. But no, the the word blessed modifies the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no mistake here that this is a reference to the deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And other translations try to capture that a little bit differently. The King James and the New American Standard, being so literal as they are, try to retain the original word order wherever they can. But the Net Bible refers to Jesus by human descent came the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Uh, the NIV says, who is God over all forever praised. Uh, in the new King James says, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. That's the thought. So what I'm trying to say is that God gave the Bible, the New Testament in Greek, and he did it for a reason. Because it is such a precise, such a refined language that you can make no mistake whatsoever as to who he is referring to. But I want you to know that to refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, is inexcusable. He is not a thing. He's not a force. He's not just some power. He's not a cloud. He is as much God as God the Father. Now, interestingly, sometimes in the New Testament, they would depart from the norm and they do that for emphasis. In other words, you'd expect something to happen, but they don't do what you would expect. So John, for instance, the apostle John, who spoke Aramaic, When he quotes the Lord Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 16, instead of using a neuter pronoun, he uses a masculine pronoun. Now, in Aramaic, the word for spirit is feminine. In Greek, it's neuter. And so John chooses a masculine pronoun. Why? Because he doesn't want you to miss it, that the Holy Spirit is indeed God. Now, that's a little aside. Let me leave that. But the reason I go there is because people often have called me over the years and said, why does the King James says the Spirit itself when the Holy Spirit is not in it? And if you think about it, he has all of the characteristics of personhood. As you can see in this chart, he has the uh, attributes of personhood. He has intellect. When we come down to verse 27, he's going to speak of the mind of the Spirit. 
His intellect is seen in the fact that he inspired all of the Scripture. He has emotion. Things cannot be grieved. Influences cannot be grieved, but the Spirit of God in Ephesians 4 can be grieved. Before we're done with this uh, chapter, we already noted it last time, or we'll note it this time, how he groans, which is an emotional word. He has intellect, he has emotion, and he has will. He gives spiritual gifts, for instance, as he wills. So I hope I didn't lose you on that, but just understand there's not a single translation today that says itself. They all say himself, and they rightly should. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's that word groanings again. Now we've seen in this chapter there are three groanings. We've already studied in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans. We saw last time that when Adam fell, all of creation fell with it. So as magnificent as some places you may go on planet Earth that will just take your breath away, it doesn't even begin to compare with the way God originally created it. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, but not as great as they once declared the glory of God because it's a fallen creation. And this creation groans, it's personified because it's awaiting for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. But not only does creation groan, Paul, if you remember last time, said that we groan as well. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Christians have trouble too. We're going to suffer, and that's going to create groaning. And if you're not prepared for that, the devil will pull the rug out from underneath your feet and you'll be quickly disillusioned. And so the creation groans, Christians groan, but now he underscores the groaning of God, the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit himself, verse 26, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, please notice, he says, we, we do not know how to pray. I have that pronoun, we. I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul, being the spiritual, spiritual giant that he was, did not say, you do not know how to pray, but he included himself in it. We do not know how to pray as we should. You know, sometimes people ask me as a pastor to pray for a particular thing, and sometimes I just don't know exactly how I should pray. Sometimes a person's 80, 85, 90 years of age, and they're in the hospital and they're very, very sick. And should I pray, oh, Lord Jesus, this saint is ready to go home. Take them. Or should I say, as the family often requests, oh, Lord Jesus, please heal them. Well, Paul, uh, of course, when he spoke of death for the believers, spoke of it in a very positive way. Listen to these verses from Philippians. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not a loss for the Christian to die. It's a gain because if living is Christ, to die is to get more of him. But I am hard pressed, he said, from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh in this body is more necessary for your sake. So he's hard-pressed from both directions. Part of him wants to go home and to be with Jesus. The other part thinks, oh, it'd be good maybe to uh, stay here on earth. Now, Paul's not looking for some escape. He was simply recognizing an obvious fact. He wrote of it six years earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when God pulled back the curtain of heaven and he gave him a glimpse of glory and it was magnificent. It was breathtaking 
so breathtaking so that he would never be tempted to brag about what he saw. God gave him a thorn in the flesh. He was caught up into paradise, into heaven, into the home of the blessed, in the land of the saved. And he was so excited and he thought, oh, it'd be marvelous to depart and to be with Jesus Christ. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. Now, unlike our Seventh-day Adventist friends that say the body, soul, and spirit of the Christian sleeps in the grave, the Bible is very clear that at the moment of death, Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Don't let anyone persuade you otherwise. Your body may be described as sleeping because it is awaiting the resurrection, but your spirit is very much alive, just like the unbeliever who dies and goes to hell. He's very, very much alive. So Paul comes back to earth and he says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for you. There's some souls to be saved. There's some church members who need to be developed. So sometimes, you know, you pray for a person, and I think, Lord, this person is so valuable to the kingdom of God. If you could give them just a few more years, if you could just give them a few more years to serve us, it would be so wonderful. How many of you, by the way, have ever faced a situation where you've prayed and you just didn't know how to pray? Raise your hand, would you? Yeah, virtually all of us here, virtually all of us. And so sometimes we are in good company with the Apostle Paul in our ignorance, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Now, there are times when I know exactly how to pray. There's no mistake how I should pray because God has spelled out in his word how I should pray. But Paul encourages me with his own personal story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of his own weakness in prayer. When God gave him that thorn in the flesh, if you remember, three times he prayed that God would heal him. Now, if Paul knew how to pray the first time, he would have said, God, don't heal me. Just give me added grace to deal with this thorn in my flesh because I know it's not your will to heal me. But he didn't know how to pray that. He didn't know that that was the will of God. And so three times he said, Lord, remove this thorn from me. And finally, God showed him that it was not his will. Finally, the Lord, in essence, said, Paul, I want to accomplish something in your life, and for me to accomplish it, you need this thorn, and you need to know that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your own weakness. And interestingly, that word for weakness in 2 Corinthians 12 is the same word for weakness here in verse 26. The Spirit helps our weakness when we do not know how to pray as we should. And so Paul is not simply writing by divine inspiration. He's writing by personal experience of what happened to him six years earlier. Even the great apostle Paul, at least on one occasion, prayed the wrong way. You say, Pastor, do you believe that God answered Paul's prayer? Yes, I did. I believe he answered it. You say, well, the thorn remained. No, I believe uh, God specifically answered it. Why? Because his heart was to do the will of God. As believers in Christ, our prayer should be to do the will of the Father. That was what Jesus himself said when looking forward to his separation from his Father. He said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, but thy will be done. And so as we walk with God and encounter various trials and afflictions, we ought to realize that perhaps it's God's will that we endure these to be increasingly conformed to him and to be molded into a vessel he can use. To listen again to today's study from Romans 8 entitled, The Providence of God, 
Call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM38. It's available on CD or DVD. You can also listen to it online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or use our Search the Scriptures app, available free through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And if you'd like to help support this ministry with a one-time gift or perhaps by becoming a foundation partner, please call us at 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we continue our look at the providence of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures.